Pastor Brooke. Well, good morning again. Um, we are going to be continuing a series of teaching that we started last week, and the series is called Rebuilding. So I recognize right away that some people come into a church service and you kind of know some things about the Bible. You know some of the stories that we're talking about, and other people are coming in like, I have no idea who these people are, and that's fine. So I'm going to try to give a little context, and really the goal would be for you to get an idea that the scripture is applicable to your life, that there is stories and principles in here that God still wants to speak to his people, that's you and I, through his word. So we're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah, and this series of teaching called Rebuilding really goes through the story of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books in the tucked away in the Old Testament there. Um, but before we dive into the book of Nehemiah, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. I wanted to highlight one other thing. And you're probably excited for me to mention this. It's our scripture memory challenge as the church. And yes, and we no longer call it a scripture memory challenge. What do we call it? A scripture memory opportunity. opportunity. That's right. So we've done this a couple of times a year since we started the church. We believe that having the word of God as a part of our life is an important thing. So we try to find some passages of scripture that we as a church can memorize. Now we have done entire chapters. There was one time, I think it was like 23 verses and a couple of times. And, and you'll notice that as every time we've done it, it's gotten shorter and shorter because we think if maybe with four verses, everyone will participate. So we've got four verses this time that we are going to memorize. And maybe some of you already have it memorized. Um, this is in Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 12. So we're going to read that together, and I encourage you and challenge you. Um, the kids are going to be doing this. The youth are going to be doing this. And right now, the kids and the youth, they're a little cocky about it because they know they're going to kick the butts of the adults when it comes to memorizing things. But I want to show them that we can actually memorize things. And the kids are thinking, my parents can't even remember our names or birthdays. <laughs> That's fine. We're going to make more room for Colossians 1, 9 through 12. So that's going to be up on the screen. I would love to have us read this together. Can we throw that up there? All right, so we're going to read this all together. And these also these scripture memory cards are available as you leave um, and grab one and memorize these verses. Here we go all together. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. We're not done yet. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may live great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. That's Colossians 1, 9 through 12. We can memorize that. Sometime in the next couple of months, four verses, we've got that. And the reason we like to memorize these things is because there are times where you are facing something and you want scripture to be a reminder of God's faithfulness. You have There's times where you're going to feel maybe disqualified from God's blessing, like you're messing up your life and you're wondering if God's going to do anything with you and you're going to have these memorized and you're going to bring to your mind, verse 12, thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in his inheritance. You're going to remember verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Anyone ever face a situation where maybe some endurance and patience is going to be helpful. These are great reminders. So this is why we want to have this 
opportunity to memorize scripture together. So let's do that. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, last week, if you were here, we told the story of the book of Ezra, and I'm going to give a little historical context just so that you kind of understand what's going on. The nation of Israel, very powerful um, during the reign of King David and King Solomon in the Old Testament. We read about those stories in the books of Chronicles and Kings and Samuel. Um, and so this great nation, very wealthy, very prosperous, and all of a sudden different kings started ruling. And then disobedience and idolatry and wickedness came into the nation of Israel and God. This, the whole design was that God said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. You stay devoted to me and I will take care of you. And the nation of Israel continued to fall into idolatry and sin and wickedness. So eventually, many, many generations after King David and King Saul and King Solomon... God's judgment comes upon Israel, and they are conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And the Empire of Babylon, the, the, the enemy nation, comes in, and they destroy the temple. They destroy the city walls. They defeat the armies, and all the people of Israel are exiled. You'll hear us refer to, preachers, you'll hear us refer to at times the exile. That's the time when Babylon came in and took all the Israelites out of their homes and scattered them throughout the Babylonian Empire. Now, what happened was during that time... Right after they were exiled, a lot of the people of Israel and some of the prophets who said they were hearing from God, they were false prophets, they were going around and spreading this rumor. And they said, okay, Israel, we know it looks dark now. We've been exiled to Babylon, but don't worry, it's not going to take long. It's going to be a very short stay. God's going to come and deliver you in a, I don't know, maybe a matter of a couple of days. And everyone was like, okay, we can deal with this for a couple of days or a short season. And that's what they were all believing. And God spoke to a man named Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet. And he gave Jeremiah this word. And he said, you have bad news that you have to go share with the Israelites. If you've ever been given bad news to share, this was Jeremiah's, essentially his role as a prophet. God kept saying, I got more bad news for you to give to the people. And Jeremiah's probably like, great, I'm going to be super popular. And so he went to the Israelites and he said, I know these other prophets are saying it's only going to be a short time that you're in exile. But God spoke to me, and here's what he spoke to me. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, you can read this whole word of the Lord for the people of Israel. And the word of the Lord was essentially, get comfortable. You're going to be here for a while. Get comfortable. This season of exile is going to last. In fact, God challenges them through the prophet Jeremiah was to say, um, it's not going to be a short stay, but get comfortable. Build houses, plant gardens settle in, um, have children. And then he also says, pray for the city that you're a part of. Invest in the city that you're a part of. Because if the city prospers, then you will prosper. So it's a, this whole idea of they've been taken as captives into exile, and God tells them you're going to be here for a while, so settle in. Build houses, plant gardens, raise families, pray for your leaders. And they're like, these are not our leaders. These are the enemy leaders. And God says, pray for them anyways. Because as that city prospers, you will prosper. And so this was the journey of the Israelites in exile. And they were in exile. And God said, it's going to be 70 years before you are allowed to leave again. And this is what happened. And this is the, the context that we find Ezra and Nehemiah in. These Israelite people that are in Babylon. And now the Babylonian Empire has been conquered by the Persian Empire. So they're now in what's the Persian Empire. And they are raising families, and they are living their life and building houses, and they are part of the culture. So much so 
that Nehemiah, and what we read about Nehemiah today, is that he is, he's an Israelite descendant, and he is now what's called the cupbearer, the cupbearer for the king, the whole king of the empire. Nehemiah is the cupbearer. Now, it goes to show that this is something that they did. They served, they were faithful, they settled down, they raised families, and because they served so well, some of these Israelites who were captives in the Persian Empire had now become people of influence in the nation. Nehemiah has become essentially the right-hand man, the main helper, the main trusted assistant of the king of the entire empire. The cupbearer would be someone who was really the right-hand man. Now, cupbearer means his main job was to test the food and the drink that was given to the king because kings were very threatened. If somebody wanted to take over as the king, they would say, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to poison the king's food or his drink. So the cupbearer's job was to taste the food and the drink before the king did. And if the cupbearer died, then everyone says, oh, we need a new meal. Someone, we need some more. We need another hot dish because somebody, you know, sometimes you, uh, no, never mind. I'm not going there. Um, <laughs> this was the cupbearer's job. He was very trusted, obviously trusted because he was kind of the last line of defense for someone who wanted to harm the king. So that's kind of the context where we're at as we read about Nehemiah. The work of the temple building, rebuilding last week was done by Zerubbabel. We talked about that. This is actually almost 70 years after the first exiles were allowed to leave. And so this is a couple of generations even after the temple had begun to re be rebuilt. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, he finds out what's going on in Jerusalem. He's asking some friends of his Tell me what's going on with the rebuilding of the city. Tell me what's going on with the rebuilding of the temple. And this is the report that he gets from his friends in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. So here we go, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. This is Nehemiah talking. I want you to remember those words. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So let's talk about this for a few moments. This is Nehemiah who has risen from child of the exiles, risen in rank and influence, and is now basically the right-hand man to the king. He hears about the state of things in Jerusalem, how even though the temple has been rebuilt, the city walls are in ruins. The city walls being in ruins, that is, a city would need to have a secure wall around it at this time in order to be protected. If you were a city without walls, that meant you could be attacked by any enemy at any time. There was no security. In fact, a city without walls really, it, it felt like almost like a secondary city. Like it's not really to be taken seriously. There's not a lot of dignity even there because you're a city without even a city wall. It would be like if Farmington didn't have a grocery store, for example. <laughs> you would say, what kind of a city is that? <laughs> he gets this report, the city wall has been broken down. He is a trusted advisor of the king and his response is to weep for the state of his city. He is broken. He cries over his city. He's mourns and fasts and prays. So I want to talk about, first of all, his position of influence. Because in a moment, the story would go on where the king is going to ask, what do you want? Why are you so sad? And he's going to say, because my people in Jerusalem, 
they're struggling. They can't even build a city wall. And he asks for permission to go and rebuild the city wall, and the king grants it. And there's a great turnaround for the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel that's about to happen. All because this child of an exile has risen in influence in the Persian Empire where he has great influence over the king. This is a huge point. He is in a position of great influence, and God uses that influence to turn the heart of the king to allow the people of Israel to return and rebuild. This is a huge moment because people like Nehemiah served so well, prayed for their city, even though it wasn't their hometown city, even though it was considered enemies of theirs. They prayed and they served and they lived in such a way that they grew in influence where God used that influence to do great things. This is a story that actually sounds familiar with many other stories in the Bible, isn't it? People who came through difficult circumstances and in the midst of difficult circumstances says, I'm not just going to shrink back and sulk and disappear and just wait for God. I'm going to live in a way that I gain influence. I'm going to pray for those who are in authority to me. I'm going to serve in such a way that I grow in influence. That sounds a lot like the story of Joseph, right, in the Old Testament where his brothers sold him into slavery and he rose in prominence in Egypt, eventually saving an entire people group because of his leadership and his influence. The story of Esther. Anyone know the story of Esther who rose similar time to this when the Israelites were in exile? She becomes so influential. She becomes the wife of the king. She is the queen of part of the empire. Because of her influence, she saves an entire people group. There's a plot to destroy all the Israelites, and she is able to use her influence for godly purposes, for big kingdom purposes. And Nehemiah, another one, great influence. His lifelong faithfulness has enabled him to be elevated to a position of influence over the king. So these stories, Nehemiah and these other ones we see in scripture, that's a great example for us as Christians as to why we can never just kind of shrink back from culture, shrink back from a world when we look at, and we all have different views on politics and social issues and things, and it's so tempting and easy for Christians to kind of huddle together and say, this world is going crazy, we can't have any part of it, there's so much sin over there, and we don't want any part of it. Instead, we live in a way where we pray for our leaders, Whatever your political influence is, there is never an excuse to not pray for your leaders. It's a God-given mandate. Pray for those in authority, for the president, for city council members, for our governor, because we want to invest in a culture rather than shrink back. If the whole culture, all the Christians just hide from it, we're missing out on our mission to be people of influence in that culture like we see Nehemiah do like we see Esther and Joseph do. This is our call as Christians. We need Christians in positions of influence in our government, in our cities, in every field of, ex in every medical field and psychology and school boards and um, all, the, all the different fields that we can think of. Of course we need influential God-fearing people who are gonna exert their influence and be a force for good and not like take over and, and uh, preach at everybody, but just be serve well, Pray well, love well, so that you earn influence, and there will be a day where God says, now you can leverage that influence for my good in your community, in your workplace, in your school. So serve well wherever you are. If you're in an environment where you're like, I can't stand my boss, and I don't think this, is, this job is any good, and it seems like dead end, and I'm at this school, and it just seems like 
a nightmare every day or I'm at this, this career that I'm in or this group of people or this neighborhood that I'm in and you just simply say, I'm going to serve well, I'm going to pray for my city and my leaders and I am going to use my influence for good. So this is the story of Nehemiah. He hears the heart of the people of Israel. His heart is broken for the state of Jerusalem. He asks the king for favor to go and rebuild and the king grants him favor and also sends him with all the resources he would need. So I'm going to highlight four things from this story as we kind of work through it a little bit in the book of Nehemiah. And then there's one point that I really want us to uh, focus on today. So the first thing is this, and we find it as we, a verse that we already read. The first point is this, that he wept for his city. He cried over his city. His heart was broken over his city. And that really formed everything else that he was going to do. Verse 4, I'll read it again. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He sat down and wept because his people were in trouble. The city was broken. There was despair. They were in a dire state. We must have a heart that weeps for our city. We must have a heart that weeps for lost people. We, you know, I'm so glad that Brooke shared what she did about um, going down to ICCM and the serve team. We we can never be calloused for the dire circumstance and the darkness that a lot of people are living in. And you don't need to go downtown Minneapolis to, to find people who are homeless, to find people who don't have enough food to eat, who find people who are in incredible, dire, difficult, hopeless situations. You can walk down this main street right here and you'll pass a number of people that are just really, really struggling. Nehemiah sees his people in Jerusalem just struggling, vulnerable to attack, unable to have any, get any traction, unable to provide for themselves, unable to do the things. It's just a really dark situation, and his heart breaks. We need a heart like Nehemiah for lost people, for people who are in darkness, for people who need food and shelter, and above everything else who need the hope of Jesus Christ. We have to have a heart that breaks. We have to weep over our city of lost people. Second thing he did is he prayed for his city. Verse 5 and 6 is some of the verses that he prayed. He said, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandment, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He goes on to pray, God, give me favor. Give me favor when I talk to the king. Give me favor to accomplish what you have me to do. He prays for his city. He prays that God would be favorable, that God would be with him. As he would go on and work and rebuild, he's going to face immeasurable opportunity. And every time he faces immeasurable, not opportunity, opposition, he faces incredible opposition from enemies. And he always says, but I knew we could do it because God was with me, because he committed the work. He prayed to God for his city. It's always important for us to be reminded when we pray who we are praying to. I love that he starts out, Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome, keeps his covenant of love, keeps his, those who keep your commandments. He is the God who is powerful. When you start a prayer time, it's always good for us to be reminded to whom we are praying. God, I'm coming to you and you are the God of the universe. You are faithful. You are mighty. You are powerful. It helps center our hearts. Rather than just jumping into our wish list and the things that we want, center your hearts in prayer. God, I know the promises of scripture and they ring true today. You are the great and powerful and faithful God. This is what Nehemiah does. And the third thing he did was he leveraged his influence. He leveraged his influence. Chapter two, verse 
4 and 5 says this. Then the king said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered the king. That right there is indicative of when you know you're going into a difficult circumstance, you know you have to have the conversation with somebody, and you're walking towards them, and in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, oh Lord, please help me, please help me. And then the conversation starts. It's that quick reminder. It's, you know, it's Brooke on the, on the light rail, like, oh, oh, Lord, please help me as I talk to this person, right? That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's already prayed, but he has kind of the quick reminder prayer there. I love that. Then the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He leverages his influence. He uses the influence that he has earned over years and years of faithful service to accomplish something that God wanted to do in the city, right? He used his influence. He was in a position of power and he used it. I think we often have, we got a lot of Christians in our culture who are withdrawing from the culture, don't want anything to do with the culture, aren't building any relationships with people in the culture, yet we're kind of just lobbing hand grenades of scripture verses and other things like, you're doing it all wrong, but we don't want anything to do with you. And there's no influence there because we have not earned any influence. You're trying to have conversations with neighbors or family members that you have not invested in at all. And they're looking at you like, why are we listening? You, I don't even know you. Why are you telling me what to do with my life? The other way to do it is if you just simply build a relationship with somebody. I've built relationships with my neighbors over the years we've lived in our neighborhood. Instead of approaching it like, well, I'm a pastor and I'm probably supposed to care about these people because the Bible tells me to. My approach has been, I want to get to know them. I want to get to know them and learn what's going on in their life. And instead of acting like I care about them, actually caring about them. And then I have a heart for them. And then conversations about faith flow way more naturally. And when they're asking me about why I have a faith in Jesus Christ, there's a whole lot more influence there because I've done life with them for years. They know that I'm not just lobbing a hand grenade of behavior Christianity saying, you should stop doing that and do what the Bible says. There's an investment there. There's influence there because I have earned that influence. You have influence in your life, in your friends, in your workplace that you have earned. That's what I'm talking about. We have to earn that influence before we leverage that influence. And this is what Nehemiah did. Lifetime of service and faithfulness. He used that influence for the good of his people. And the fourth thing is this. He persevered for his city. He persevered. When, he, um, when the king let him go, he went back and he surveyed the situation. And in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, you look at him and he's looking at all the, the city wall. And he's like, this was burned and this was demolished. And it was a hopeless situation. He probably was thinking, man, what have I gotten myself into? This looks really, really tough. And then he persevered. There was opposition that came his way. And in, in chapter 4, verse 16 and 17... This gives a little bit of an idea because there was all the other people groups around them that didn't want the city to be rebuilt because then they would be rising again in power and influence. And so they opposed it. They attacked them. They tried to stop the, the rebuilding. And this is what it says in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 4. Because of the opposition, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. So right away, the workforce is cut in half so that some can work and other people can protect the workers as they do the work. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other hand. This is a situation that required a lot of courage. 
This was a situation that required perseverance. And over and over, Nehemiah said, I know that God is with me. I know that this work is what he wants me to do. So we're going to persevere. We're just going to work hard. There is seasons when it's simply just a season where you're going to have to persevere. And you're going to have to work hard. There's something in front of you, and we've experienced this as students, maybe in college, where you're like, oh, man, the next two weeks are just going to be bonkers, right? Or you do that with something in your schedule or something with your family or something. We experienced that when we were renovating this building. Has anyone ever experienced that, where you're looking at something and you're like, oh, man, this next season is going to be really tough? And what you do is you, you know, I guess you carry a, a... the work in one hand and a sword in the other. Or you, you know what Nehemiah did. You just simply recognize it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to persevere. It's going to be difficult, and I'm going to get through it because God is with me, and I'm doing what God has called me to do. And this situation that I'm in, I'm not going to shrink back and say, I can't do it. I can't do it. It's going to require perseverance, and you can do it. Students, I want to talk to you for a moment. There is times where ahead of you, you feel this Something is happening. It's something difficult that's going to require hard work. And you feel that anxiety in your heart. And you feel what feels like anxiety. And the temptation is to think, I can't do it. This is too hard. And now in our culture, especially today, I think we've swung maybe a little too far towards if you're feeling anxious about something, then you don't have to do it. And we're going to make you feel better. And here's a cell phone. And just relax and just be, you know, feel better, right? Now, there are times where it is a clinical anxiety thing, and I'm not talking about that, and I'm not a medical expert, obviously. But there are times where I think all of us, young and old, we feel what feels anxiety. And really that anxiety is just simply saying, this is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. But I can do it. I can persevere and get through this. And you're going to get through it, and you're going to see God help you get through it. And next time you're going to say, oh, this next thing seems hard too. But I remember how God got me through the last time. And I remember how hard I worked the last time and it resulted in good things. And with God's help, I can do the hard things. So we need to, like Nehemiah and the people of Israel say, this is going to be tricky and there's all sorts of obstacles and opposition, but it's going to be a work hard situation and we can do it. We can do the hard things. People of God, with God's help, we can do a lot more than I think we are, than we think we're capable of, right? Because God is helping us. Nehemiah and the people, after the the city wall had been torn down for generation after generation, it says later on in the book that the wall was rebuilt. The project was completed in 52 days. This is an amazing testament to hard work, to great leadership, to trust in God, and the provision of God to accomplish His work. They persevered. You are capable, with God's help, of a lot of things. Students, you are capable of doing the hard things. God is going to be with you. Now, how I want to close is with this. It all flows out of a burden for your city. That's the first point. He wept for his city. All of this flowed out of that burden. It wasn't just, I think this might be a good thing to do, or he wasn't tasked with it. Somebody said, Nehemiah, you have to go rebuild the wall. And he's like, oh, I guess I have to do this. It flowed out of a broken heart. He wept for his city. He cared about his city. We must have a burden for the people around us, the communities around us, the families around us that resemble that city wall in Jerusalem, broken down, weary, that city living in disgrace, unprotected from enemies, mocked and ridiculed, unable to provide for themselves. Our heart needs to break for the people around us, the lost people. And this needs to be the heartbeat for all of us. This is the heartbeat for our church. Grown-ups, there's something that happens to us when we get to be grown-ups. 
kids are all energetic and they believe everything we say and they believe the Bible and like God is great and he's going to do it. And teenagers have energy and they're like, yeah, God is great. And we're going to raise $70,000 for missions. And then they go ahead and do it. And these teenagers and kids, they get it. And then sometime when we get to be grownups, it's like, I'm tired, right? <laughs> just, just sitting down and then standing up again is really hard. That's how you find out how old you are, is you know, lay down on the ground and then get back up. And how many noises you make in that process is kind of shows you your age. We get tired and we have more at stake. We grow in fear, we grow in complacency. We have more to lose. We have careers and investment portfolios and people that depend on us. And our faith becomes about just staying safe and settling. And once our faith becomes about settling and we turn inward, then it becomes about, you know, complaining about other things. And, man, if you're a bored Christian and you've lost a burden for the lost people, then you start to begin to make your faith about programs at church and comfort and making sure I feel good and comparing your Christianness to other people so that you can feel more Christian. And, man, there's churches that fall into that trap. Nothing will hinder a mission of a church more than a group of people that have just turned inward in their faith. I want a Nehemiah heart for this church to look around at the brokenness in our community, in our city, and in our nation and say, man, that breaks my heart. We got to do something about it, right? I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast. God, use me to use my influence to do something about this. This is why we have serve teams that go to ICCM so that you can have your heart broken for the things that the people that are living in our cities the families that need to pour gasoline on the concrete and light it on fire just so they can feel a little bit of warmth on a cold Minnesota night. This is why we have mission trips so that you can experience different cultures and people who have simply are among the least of these who have so little to survive on and yet they have joy and they have purpose and they have faith. This perspective is what we need to get. We need to have our heart broken. We can give opportunities to serve, but if it doesn't stem from a heart that is broken for lost people, then it's just going to feel like work. But if our hearts are in it, if we're engaged, if we have a burden for our city, well, then it becomes a mission that we are a part of. So that's what I want this church to be about, finding lost people and sharing the faith of Jesus Christ, finding the hopeless people and giving them hope in Jesus Christ, those who are hungry and finding ways to feed them ultimately so that they would know that there is life and hope in Jesus Christ. This is what, we're not a club. We're not a Christian club on Sunday mornings, right? We go here and we have music and it's fun and there's donuts and I hear there's even soup on Saturday nights and this is not what we're about. We're going to do all these things, but this is a movement, a missions movement. And this isn't just for us. This is for teenagers, for kids. What we've seen over the last few years is that um, as we've been in this building, families that live nearby, we've got kids that, you know, come from really dark family homes that just kind of wander around. And they, we have one young boy, probably in the fourth or fifth grade, who discovered there's people here who are nice and there's donuts. And so he shows up a lot on Sunday mornings and just hangs out. And he came to the Christmas outreach and he's come to a number of things and we've gotten to know him. And I don't think the family has had any contact with us, but here's a young boy that comes to church because he knows there's a group of people that love him and support him. So our kids' ministry is, is not like entertainment and see if we can entertain your kids and babysit your kids while you go to church. It's to build this foundation of faith in our kids, in our young people. That's what they're doing. They're having a ton of fun downstairs, but they're learning how to anchor their life in Jesus Christ so that they can get a burden for their city. 
and that this can be a movement that they then will influence their culture. Amen. We got another brother and sister that started wandering into our youth ministry a couple years ago. And they live just down the road from us. And again, a teenager walks by on a Wednesday night and they see a bunch of teenagers in there. They're going to be like, that's where I need to be. So they just come wandering in and they find an environment that accepts them and loves them. They don't know how to act like Christians, but they're in an environment that loves them and supports them and teaches them about Jesus. And they hear about hope and purpose and life and they want to come back. And this is why we have a youth ministry that we have. It is not a, it's not a club for our teenagers to just have them come out and hang out with the other Christians on a Wednesday night. This is about rebuilding the broken down city walls and the families that are around us. And we've had families that the faith transition in their life happens because the teenagers came and got saved. So we're going to do more of that, right? We're going to do more of that. And this is a friction that we face in many youth groups. You'll talk to a lot of youth groups and a lot of churches. They face this friction. Because it starts out with the kids of the Christian families and they hang out on Wednesday nights and they have a good time and they have worship and they pray for each other and it's great. But then we want to reach out to our community and so we get a bunch of community kids that come in and they come from difficult homes and they don't know how to act like Christians and we love them and we want them to know about Jesus and they find an environment like this brother and sister. They find an environment where they're accepted. And so then all of a sudden the vibe of the youth group changes where it's like, oh, the language is a little different than when it was when we just had the Christian kids here. And let me just say, Christian kids can get into a whole lot of trouble all on their own. So there's nothing to do with that. But all of a sudden you have all these people and there's influences and attitudes and language and different things. And, and, uh, and nobody's cooking meth in the bathrooms. That's fine. It's not a situation like that, right? But there's that friction where the Christian families are like, well, I want my kids to be around good influences, but I also want them to make a difference in the world. This environment, Brooke and Stephen do an amazing job at providing an environment that is safe, that is well supervised, but we're not going to say, well, until you can be respectful and act like a Christian, you can't be in here because that makes the Christian kids feel uncomfortable. That's not what we're about. We're going to enter into that friction a little bit, right? And we're going to say, we want to see these kids have their lives changed. We want, man, I just think about the communities around us. We want to find the, the, the kids that are the most messed up and just see if we can take some to heaven with us. Right? Thank you, Lonnie. This is what we're about. So we're going to walk through that conflict a little bit and just so you know, this is, we're not a club. We're not just trying to put in time. We're not just waiting for heaven. We are a life on mission, right? Parents, we should model this for our kids, what it means to have a life on mission like Nehemiah, what it means to have a life anchored in faith that we want to make a difference in our world. Because guess what? Your kids are learning about faith right now by watching you. Whether you're doing it right or you're not, they're learning about what it means to be a life of faith, to be willing to invest in those who are broken, to be willing to invest everything you have to see more people saved. This is what we get to do. So let's close in prayer this morning. And before we pray, I just want to ask you this. Where does God have you positioned right now? Perhaps you didn't realize, but you're like Nehemiah, or you're like Esther, or you're like Joseph, where you thought you were just putting in time, doing work, but God has you there for a purpose. The great verse in the story of Esther is that in the middle of it, God says to her, or some, uh, she hears from someone who says, perhaps God has you here for such a time as this. Perhaps you are here for a reason. Where are you positioned right now? school or workplace or community or neighborhood or family or friend group 
You're the Nehemiah in that friend group, in that school, in that community. So serve well, lead well, earn influence and use your influence for big kingdom purposes. Who are you building relationships with that does not know Jesus? Who can you talk to about your faith? Who can you serve and love? How can you serve your community to those who are of the least of these who are in dire circumstances? Who can you share your faith with? Who can you simply just invite to church? Who have you built up enough of a relationship with that you could go to them and say, hey, I go to church on Sunday mornings. It's not a bad place. Perhaps you would like to come with me and I'll meet you there or we'll ride together. You can sit with me. You'd be amazed at how many people are open to that from people that they know love them and care for them. So God, I pray that you would speak to each of us how we can live Nehemiah faith just recognizing the state of our city and saying, man, my heart breaks for that and I got to do something about it. There's lost people I drive by or walk by every day and my heart breaks for them. Lord, break our hearts for lost people once again. May we never grow complacent or cold about that. And Lord, we may we just have a, such a burden for it. We say, I got to talk to them. I got to invite them. I got to do something because eternity is at stake. Family legacies and generations are at stake because of one person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ, how it changes an entire family legacy. We want to be a part of that, Lord. So help us, guide us, lead us, and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. If you would like to stay and pray in here for a moment, you can do that. If you want someone to pray with you, we'll have prayer team members up at the front here. They would love to pray with you. Um, thanks for being with us. If you're visiting today, I'd love to meet you after the service. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.